The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Oh, man. You should get like a year off from nursery duty (laughs) for reading that passage. I I gave her an out. I said, if you don't want this passage, I'm happy to read it. And she was like, I got this. Um, This afternoon, my kids asked me, "Um, so you're preaching on a Christmas passage tonight, right? It's Christmas Eve. And I I said, yeah. And they said, well, which one? I said, well, let me read it to you. And I read it to them, and they looked at me sort of like I was crazy, sort of like some of you look right now. Um, But I think this passage has much to tell us about Jesus. It has much to tell us about ourselves this afternoon. And so before we dig into it, um, let me pray. Father, every single part of your word is, is breathed by your spirit. It's inspired And it's good for us, and it reproves us, and it teaches us, and it trains us in righteousness. It points us to your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we we thank you for your word this afternoon. We thank you that, that in it we see you most clearly revealed to us because you speak to us through it. And so, Father, we ask this afternoon that through this passage you might show us Jesus more clearly, that we might see our need for him more clearly, that we might see that he meets us 
He meets us in the mess of our lives. That he comes to redeem our story. To invite us into his family. To rewrite our history. To make us his eternally. And Father, if we don't know that today, may you open our eyes by your spirit to see it. If we know it and have forgotten it, may you aliven it in us so that we might embrace it. We might rejoice, even during a season that for some of us might be painful and hard. I pray that you would allow us to see hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a question that you probably, you get a lot, especially maybe in the last few weeks you went to a Christmas party something like that, and there's a lot of people in the room that you didn't know, and so um, you're having to have the dreaded mingle time and small talk, and as you're walking around, you meet somebody new, and you start talking, and you exchange names, and then it comes to that point, it's like, what's the next question I'm going to ask this person, or what's the next question this person is going to ask me? What do you think the next question is? You could talk to me at this point. Where are you from? That's a good one. It's not where I was going. What do you do? So, so what do you do? It's such a, and I've asked this question, it's not a horrible question, but it's kind of a strange question because I think that our first impulse when we're asked by somebody, what is it that you do, is that our mind starts to think about something that we have produced or something that we've accomplished, and so quickly we begin to think about our jobs. We might start to try to make our job sound better than it is. We start to think about maybe some hobby. I'll redirect their attention to this hobby that I'm really proud of and I'm pretty good at. Or um, we talk about our education. We talk about something. What do you do? And there's a sense in which maybe we hate that question. I often hate that question because when I say, well, for a living I'm a pastor, people get quiet and move away a lot of times. But we kind of like that question, too, because if who I am is reduced to what I do, then some of us maybe are prone to think, then, well, maybe I've got a little control over who I am. Maybe if I produce a little more, if I'm a little more accomplished, then maybe I'll be somebody. But let's think about this. What if the question that we asked one another during these kind of situations was this question, who are you? I'm not recommending that you do this because it would be painfully awkward. I just told you who I am. I told, I'm Tim. No, who are you? And I wonder how you would answer that question. How do you sum up who you are? How do you sum up the, the, the essence of who you are? And I doubt that many of us, maybe some of us would, But I doubt that many of us would say, well, let me tell you. I'm going to start with my great, 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 great grandfather. And we're going to work our way down, and I'm going to give you the family tree of the Udodges. And a lot of us wouldn't do that, probably for very good reason. It would bore to tears the person that we were talking to, and they would quickly wish they hadn't gotten into that conversation. But some of us... We might not do that because what we realize is that we really had nothing to do with any of that. My lineage is not my accomplishment. I didn't pick it. I was born into it. We don't pick our family. You're sitting, some of you, with your family today. Maybe you haven't seen in a while, and uh, maybe you're reminded. I didn't pick these people, right? 
They just happened into my life. I had no control over this. Maybe we would not talk about our family history because some of it's embarrassing. Some of it is full of characters that we would rather not mention, that we don't want to think that they have something to do with, with who I am. Some of our family trees really aren't that impressive. And the bottom line is, like, I haven't met these people. What do they have to do with me? My uncle Gary, on my dad's side, has become sort of the family historian. And this, I mean, he's done this for decades. He's just one of those guys who loves it, and it's become a hobby to him. And so he has traced Udodges. You may not think there's many Udodges out there. There's lots of them. And he's traced them all the way back to Slovenia, and he's gone and visited them. And he's learned all about our, our family tree. And when I, was a, when I was a kid, I was probably like maybe seven or eight years old. I remember one day my dad brought home a, a huge family tree that Gary had made. And he framed it, and he put it in our house. And I would pass by that family tree every single day growing up. And I would, every once in a while, I'd stop, and I would look at it, and I would be fascinated by it, and I would see these names, and I would look at these names, and I would wonder what they were like, and I would wonder who they were. And over time, it dawned on me that a part of who I am comes from these people. Like it or not, this is part of my lineage. This is part of answering the question, who are you? And the crazy thing about Jesus, and when we get to the very beginning, these are the first words of the New Testament. The first words of the New Testament start with a genealogy. You usually probably skip over it. You may have never actually heard it read aloud before. But the crazy thing about Jesus' family tree is although we cannot pick ours, he could. He picked his family. He picked these people. And the names on this list aren't just sort of the boring part that we rush past in order to get to the good stuff. The names on this list, Matthew starts this way for a good reason because he's answering that question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And when we begin to answer the question, who is Jesus, that not only tells us about what he came to do, what he's about, it tells us something about those of us who follow him, those of us who confess to know him. And so the last few weeks, the last few weeks of Advent, we've been listening to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah speaking into a context where God's people are confused and they're tired and they're waiting, that they've experienced the repercussions of their own sins, that they've experienced exile, that there's many ways in which they're losing hope. And Matthew picks up his pen to write. And when he does, there's been silence for 400 years. That's older than our country that God's people didn't hear from a prophet. They wondered what was next. And Matthew picks up his pen and he begins to write this genealogy. And this genealogy is a summary of the entire story. Leading up to this one that they're waiting for, that they've been waiting for, that they've been longing for. And Matthew specifically is writing to, to a Jewish audience and he's convincing them, he's trying to convince them, this is the one you've been longing for. 
So how does he do that? Why is this important? What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the God that we worship? What does it tell us about ourselves? I'm going to look at just a couple of things this afternoon. Can't look at all of these names you may be relieved to know together. We are going to look at a few of them. And the first thing I think it tells us, if there's anything I think that immediately jumps out at us about this list of names, is that this story and this history and this family tree of Jesus is not neat and tidy at all. You think the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the long-awaited Messiah is coming. What would his family tree look like? In a lot of ways, it's an absolute mess. And what Matthew is communicating, I think, right off the bat, at the beginning of his gospel, the beginning of the good news, is especially to those who have been waiting and who have been longing and who have maybe even begun to despair, is that no one and nothing can thwart the promises of God. No one and no thing can thwart the promises of God. No matter how dire this this family tree might look, his promise has always been secure. It's always been stable. Just think about the first couple of names in this genealogy, that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are two huge names in a list of names that might be kind of obscure to some of us. These are names that all of us have heard of, that all of us know. These are two kind of pillars of the faith in a way that, that have God made enormous promises to. What about Abraham? Abraham is one who is praised in Hebrews chapter 11 in many ways for his faith and we praise him for that as well but we don't worship the faith of Abraham we worship the God who kept his promise to Abraham despite Abraham continually trying to take matters into his own hands at every turn and at every corner So God promised to Abraham, what did he promise? That he would be the father of many nations and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But what happened is the same thing that happens a lot of times in our lives, that this sounds very good, but the reality sets in and Abraham starts to get older and get older and Sarah hears God say, you're going to have a child, you're going to bear a son, and she laughs at God. And how could she not? And so Abraham tries to fulfill this promise in his own way. Because the timing of God is not something that we understand, and it's something that frustrates us. It's something that makes us mad at times. And so Abraham says, well, I'm going to have a son through Sarah, my wife's maidservant. Bad idea. There's a point at which um, Abraham is afraid of, of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh sees that his wife, Sarah, is beautiful. And so Abraham says, well... She's actually my sister. You can, you can take her with you. Because Abraham, although in many ways was full of faith, he was also full of failure. And here at the very beginning, Jesus is not ashamed to say, I am the son of Abraham. Hold on to that for a minute. Think about David. David doesn't need any introduction, does he? David was the obscure shepherd. He was out in the field. Um, He's too young to be a king, and yet 
Samuel says, I, there's one more that God's telling me we need to talk to, and it's David. And they bring him in, and they anoint him as king. And the next thing we know, David takes a stone and slays a giant, and he's a man after God's own heart. The promise that God makes to David is that his throne is never going to end. It will endure forever. And yet David, Matthew alludes to it in this genealogy. He alludes to the darker side when he says that that David is the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's kind of a funny way to put it, isn't it? That David's the the father of Solomon by somebody else's wife. And the, the point is that the throne continues, the promise moves forward, even though, even through and despite David's adultery and David's murder. That, that, that through chaos, God is working out his promise. It will not be thwarted by anyone, by any sin, by anything, that he continues to work it out. And there was continual failure on David's part, and yet Jesus calls himself the son of David. That he ident- Jesus identifies his flesh with David's. We could stop there and talk about the good news that's there, but let's move on. Because the Israelites had to be looking at this. Just You think about the common guy on the street whose name's not in Scripture anywhere, who's looking at this and he's thinking, how are God's promises going to be fulfilled? All of our leaders are, are fraught with sin and failure. How is he going to ever do this. It didn't look good. It didn't look redeemable. But the promises of God, they may seem defeated at times, and yet they're always perfectly ordered. They're always timely. And Matthew's Matthew's screaming this at us. He's saying, let me give you the history in, in this 17 verses. Let me show you what God was doing this entire time when, when all of his people were thinking, how long and, and is this ever going to work? And is God actually faithful to what he says? And Matthew is saying, yeah, everyone else was unfaithful, but look how his promises have played out. I have a hard time with that. You probably do too. I, I got a little glimmer of, of this this week, this lesson this week. I was going to meet somebody for lunch. I'd left my office running about two minutes late, like I normally am. If you've ever met me, sorry. Um, and a dog ran out in front of my car. And so I slam on my brakes, and as I'm thinking, I, I just killed that dog. Like, I was pretty much sure of it. Right when I thought that, like, glass hits the back of my head, and somebody rear-ended me. And um, everybody was fine. It's no big deal, but my first thought, you know my first thought, what an inconvenience. You know, what is this going to mean for the rest of my day? What's it going to mean for the rest of my week? What is this going to, you know, how is this going to play out? But what I, what I realized, see, God's not always this clear with us, but he was really clear with me that day because as I got out of the car, what he was saying is I, I have like a divine appointment with you, and it's with the person who hit you. And this man could have been mad or mean or grumpy, but he was the kindest older gentleman that I could have ever met. And for two hours while we waited for the cops, we talked about Jesus. And I knew that it was, you know, he was going to get the ticket for this and 
this was going to go on his insurance, and I was feeling sort of bad about that. And he looked at me as we kind of talked about it, and he said, he said, you know what? I don't know why God does what he does. I don't need to know. All I know is he's good. He's always been good to me. This must be good too. And I was like, preach it, Roy. Preach it to me. This is, this is what this genealogy is talking about. And of course, you know, you expect to see the names like Abraham and David there prominently on display in this genealogy. Those are the names that you expect. But there's some names in here that would have been a shock to the first readers. And I think that they're, if you think about them, they can be a shock to us. Because there's some women in this genealogy. If you go back and look at the genealogies of the Old Testament, the genealogies are passed down from father to father to father. And yet Matthew puts some women in here, and I think Matthew is trying to communicate something really clearly. I think one of the things he's communicating, I think he's communicating a lot, is that Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with them either. That this is part of his lineage as well. And why is that? That was countercultural in and of itself. But when you look at who these women were, it becomes even more clear. That the one thing that they all have in common is that they were outside of God's covenant people. Except for Bathsheba, who married a Hittite, which meant she would have been considered outside the family of God. So you've got Tamar, and you've got... Rahab, and you've got Ruth, and you've got Bathsheba, and these are surprising names in this genealogy of Jesus. And one of the reasons they're surprising, and I think one of the reasons that Matthew is putting them in our face to make us somewhat uncomfortable is to see that this is who Jesus chooses. This is how Jesus works. He picked his family tree, and he didn't make a mistake. And who was Tamar? Go back and read Genesis 38. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and sits outside the city gate so that she can seduce her father-in-law, Judah, so that she might have a son. It is a messed up story, but she has a son. They're listed here. Perez is one of her sons, and, and through that, the promise continues. You think about Rahab. She didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She was, and she ran essentially a brothel. And Joshua's spies hide there, and she meets the living God. And she ends up bearing a son, becomes the mother of Boaz. And, you know, just pause there and go, do you think you know what God's going to do next? You don't. (laughs) Neither do I. Would those spies, Joshua's spies, ever have guessed, we're going to go in here because we're about to get killed, and we're going to hide out in a brothel. And maybe we're going to get in trouble for it later. That God was working out his plan and working out his promise because Rahab was part of the family tree of Jesus. That's crazy. You think about Ruth. She was a Moabite, a widow. Ends up marrying Boaz, the son of Rahab. The promise continues. You think about Bathsheba who's in many ways used by David, was complicit in the activity, but when the king calls you, then you, you go. 
But even part of her actions brought hardship on the whole household of God. And so what's the point? What is Matthew trying to say to us? Why is this important for us to think about on Christmas Eve? And there's a lot of things I could say, but let me pull out one thing, is that God is not disabled by your sin. God is not disabled by your sin. He's not disabled by your sin because it's because of your sin that he came. It's because of your sin that these promises are being carried out so that Jesus might come and redeem us, that he might come and save us, that he brings pardon and redemption in and through these women. He takes their stories and redeems them so that we're sitting here reading them now that they're part of the family tree of Jesus, that he makes them part of his story. And you see, he's able to use those who have horribly messed up. He's able to use those who have horribly sinned for his purposes. He's able to redeem the worst of stories. He's able to turn around the saddest of tragedies. Their sin could not stop his grace. Their sin was the very reason that he came into this world. Do you know Do you know there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you? Do you know that? I have a hard time believing that sometimes. That there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. It's the reason that Paul gets to a point and he proclaims where sin abounded... Grace abounded all the more. And what you read in this genealogy is, a, is just basically an abundance of sin. And he gets to the end and he says, There's a, there is a punctuation mark here. At the end of an abundance of sin, grace has abounded all the more, more than you could ever ask or fathom or even think. That Jesus, this is the Christus, Christmas message, that he has come into the mess of broken, sinful twisted people like me and like you and into our families and he has identified himself with us so much so that he has taken our sin upon himself you don't have to be paralyzed by your past how many of us in this room are paralyzed by our past You don't have to be paralyzed by your past. It's the very reason he came. It's the very reason that his promises could not be thwarted. Because he was on a mission to redeem us from our sin, and in doing so to redeem our entire story, so that you ask that question, who are you? You've got a very different answer. To make you part of his family, to make you part of this family. And the rest of the genealogy, I mean, you could go back through and read this genealogy. You could study the names. It's much of the same. But there's also a bunch of people in this genealogy that I think is worth noting that we know pretty much nothing about. They're completely obscure. And I think, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like good news as well. That God was working out his promises and his plan through people that we don't even know about. Through you, who, people you've never really even heard of. I think it's good news because I think even now that Jesus is working out his promises right here. 
right here in this church through you who know him, through you who've called upon his name, through you who are covered with his blood and his righteousness, that God is actually continuing to work out his promises. And your name might not be in the news and your name might not be in lights, but your name is recorded in the book of life. And next to your name, what it says is co-heir with Christ. Brother of Jesus, sister of the Messiah, child of the living God, heir to the King. That's who we are. You know, nowhere was this more apparent, God working through the obscures until you get to the last few names on that list, and you get to Mary and Joseph, and I can't talk about them a lot tonight, but how obscure were they? And Jesus, who picks his family tree, says, this is where I want to start. This is the womb that I choose to enter. This is where I will be born of a woman through a couple of unknown refugees. What is the point of Christmas? What is the point of the incarnation? What is the point of Jesus' humility and his obedience to the Father? What is the point of all of these promises being kept? Is it not that God's grace is sufficient for anybody? It is sufficient for anybody. That the heart of God is for the least of these, it's for the obscure, it's for those who've despaired over their past sin and those who are overwhelmed with their present sin. I can even maybe feel a little smirk on Matthew's face as he writes the beginning of this gospel because I think that what Matthew has to be saying is, do you know who I am? I'm a swindler. I'm a traitor to my people. I'm a tax collector. And I'm part of this family. Jesus called me. He rewrote my story. He brought me into this. That God's grace is sufficient for anyone. And so that leaves us, I think, this afternoon with a question. And the question is this. Is your gospel, is your good news, is your Christianity, is it big enough for your enemy? Is it big enough for the person that you despise? Is it big enough for the one that you think is deserving what they're getting? Is your gospel big enough for the family member that you're going to see tomorrow that you dread seeing because they always say the thing they should never say? Is it big enough for them? They might be sitting next to you right now. Is your gospel big enough for the person whose politics are different than yours? If your gospel is not that big, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Who are you? Who are you? Jesus came so that you don't have to be defined by your job. You don't have to be defined by your bank account. You don't have to be defined by your worst sin, you don't have to be defined by your greatest achievement that he took on flesh, he entered into obscurity, he endured the shame because he loves sinners, because he loves you. And for those of us who know him, who've cried out in desperation, our answer to that question, who are you, is really simple. I am loved. 
I am loved, I am forgiven, I am eternally accepted, and I am cherished by the living God through the finished work of his son, Jesus, who entered into the weirdness and the chaos and the brokenness of my story, who forgave me and who made me a part of his family. For those of you this, this afternoon who don't know him, that's an invitation. That you don't have to fix your story first. That this is what Matthew is proclaiming. Do not tarry. Do not think that church, that Christianity, that for Jesus came for people who have cleaned up their lives, who look a certain way, who have already mastered a moral lifestyle. That the people listed in his family tree, we can call them saints, even though many of them might not have looked like it from the outside because they had been healed from the inside out. And so it's an invitation to come to him now. Jesus isn't ashamed of his family. He isn't ashamed that his very human flesh was derived from this messed up tree because Jesus came to save, to restore, to rewrite stories, to redeem. He came into the darkness to bring light. Let me pray. Father, as we say many weeks after we look at your word, I think honestly we say we believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief, that there's many of us that believe that that, that's who Jesus is, and that's the kind of people that he came for, but in the day in, day out existence of our lives, um, we live as if that's not true. So I pray that um, the rest of this evening and tomorrow as we meditate on your son taking on flesh, that we might see that he came for people just like us, that his word clearly displays that his family tree looks about as messed up as ours, that he came to rewrite our story. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to know it, and then help us to live that gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.